0: You are listening to ReachMD XM two thirty three, the channel for medical professionals. Research was conducted to determine the success rate for CPR on the television shows Chicago Hope, ER, and Rescue nine one one. It was seventy five percent. Is this reality? Welcome to the Clinicians Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Perry Fine. Dr. Fine is a professor in the Department of Anesthesiology in the School of Medicine at the University of Utah and a senior fellow with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Dr. Fine, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable.
1: Well, thanks so much, Susan. Great to be here.
0: How effective is CPR for the frail, elderly, and terminally ill?
1: Well, you know, the examples you gave of uh, the TV shows, you know, Marshall McLuhan may have said that the medium is the message, but um, in this case, I think the message is uh, unfortunately a, a. a a false one. And although uh, I don't think any physician wants to take away hope from a patient, hope is an extraordinarily powerful and important thing. Where CPR and ACLS and uh, resuscitation, medical resuscitation applies to patients frail elderly and especially those with advanced medical illness, the outcomes are extraordinarily poor. I think this is certainly one of the areas where there's little ambiguity in terms of likelihood of benefit of an intervention for, for um, for these types of patients.
0: What is the out-of-hospital survival rate for people like you and me?
1: Well, assuming that, um, um, that you and I are you know, fairly healthy, and let me um, broadly say middle-aged folks uh, with, I don't know your age, but um, uh, let's assume we're somewhere between 30 and 60. Safe. Um, Safe. <laughs> <if they, laughs> and don't have any um, serious chronic progressive medical illness. If we have a witnessed cardiac arrest um, and there's somebody immediately available to defibrillate and, and reperfuse, the outcomes are, are, you know, pretty good. I can't give you exact numbers because it varies from location to case location and person to person and a lot of variables, but it's pretty good. You know, and, and I think that the, uh, the Seattle-Washington experience is maybe maybe the best. Um, maybe there's some other areas. But um, the sad truth, of course, is that most cardiac arrests are not witnessed as, witnessed, and, and most, not one, and oftentimes those that are, for instance, in a hospital setting, our patients who have serious medical illness are, are there for, in a sense, in the medical environment for a reason. Now, it, it's sort of also important, I think, to go back into the history of where uh, CPR and the whole notion of resuscitation developed. And it was really around uh, three main areas. One was electrical shock. So, you know, an electrical event that caused fibrillation, and if that was witnessed and the patient was rapidly cardioverted, then, you know, in the absence of any other medical problems, then oftentimes those results were quite good. The other is near-drowning, where, again, it's a, um, an acute medical event and resuscitation can, in fact, be quite successful. The third and probably the, the main area where this was all developed and, and where CPR and resuscitation, in a sense, evolved was in the operating room set in anesthesiology. That is under the influence of anesthetic drugs and, and surgical um, situations. Um, resuscitation sort of, in a sense, occurs on a beat-to-beat basis. It's, it's something that's sort of in real time going on continually as part and, pr- uh, part and parcel of, of anesthesiology. And so that's where a lot of the techniques and, the, and, in a sense, the success of resuscitation evolved. But none of those situations um, really apply to patients with advanced medical illness. And, uh, and that's, I think, why we see such a discrepancy in, in the outcome.
0: Why is CPR performed so often on the frail, elderly, and hopelessly ill?
1: Well this is sort of a philosophical question in a sense, far more than a medical one, in that um, default for cardiac arrest in a medical setting was always a um, what, you know what what we know in medicine is to be a code. Um, this was the response to a patient um, uh, with cardiac arrest, and the intentions were all always quite quite good and noble right I mean we think that that um, the whole you know one of the main duties and purposes of of medicine is to um uh sustain and restain life. Um and so this is you know sort of a life giving, life promoting, life sustaining process. And yet the outcomes um are not only poor in terms of uh, of life expectancy after um C P R, the morbidity that we oftentimes cause and the suffering um that uh that is associated with the morbidity we cause is also really quite extreme. It's a really, it's a sort of a cultural phenomenon that really, I think, does require some, you know, in a sense, philosophical reflection of why do we do the things we do, and um, I don't have, uh, you know, I've got some ideas, of course, but I don't have complete answers. Um, but this is really a systems issue that that does really beg some further and deeper thought.
0: Tell us about the support study.
1: The support study is a really a phenomenal watershed, very large study uh, that was first was published. In 1995, so that goes back about, what, 12 years now. But um, as a watershed event, it, it was a, a close to $25 million uh, long-term study looking at outcomes of admissions of patients with advanced medical illness, heart failure, lung disease, uh, cancer diagnoses um, at large metropolitan urban medical centers. And it was actually an interventional study to try and determine if those patients were admitted, in large many of them in, in ICU settings, whether a um, nurse intervention, having a nurse intermediary, in a sense, discuss issues such as CPR and DNR orders and pain management issues and um, end-of-life wishes and those sorts of things between the medical staff and the patients and their families would make a difference in outcomes for those patients. And as it turns out, it was a negative study in that there was no change in outcomes DNR, whether the patient had preferred or had made a declaration about wanting resuscitation, did not seem to alter the care plan. Whether It turns out that about 50% of patients in that study who died were assessed as as having significant pain problems up until the time of death. That wishes in terms of site of of care, whether the patient had preferred not to be in the hospital, was not necessarily followed. In many cases, uh, DNR Orders um, were not put into place or discussed until within 24 to 48 hours of the patient's death, in spite of, of previous conversations about such things outside of the medical staff. And so, this um, publication of, uh, of, of this type of information, I think, really was the uh, turning point in the recognition that there was something just really broken with our healthcare system, in, in especially in, from a standpoint of either both preventing the kinds of crises that lead dying patients to be hospitalized where oftentimes their, um, their, their needs were not being met, or once in hospital for legitimate and important purposes, their palliative care needs were not being met. And so this was really the beginning of this movement towards palliative care as a specialty, which, in fact, palliative medicine has become a specialty as, as of last September, almost a year now, um, under the American Board of Medical Specialties. Plurality of hospitals now in America have some form of palliative care service or, or team involved in the uh, provision of care. Hospice services have grown tremendously in this amount of time, and so add a lot of research into this area. So, again, I just emphasize it really was sort of a turning point in, um, in, I think, in the history of medicine in America.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Perry Fine discussing the myths of CPR and DNR. Dr. Fine, when is the right time to have discussions about DNR, and what should be said?
1: I think um, uh, as a major turning point, while individuals are still Able to understand and acknowledge what's going on with them and their their circumstances, and can make truly informed decisions about what may or may not be in their best interests. That's the time, and I think that you know it's certainly a a, um, a reason for I think uh, individuals to try and associate with a primary care physician. It's a little tough because in today's healthcare world, we oftentimes spread ourselves amongst many specialists for you know each organ system requires a different doctor and. We struggle with sort of centralizing our care, or at least having somebody who really serves as our sort of advocate um, for us as a person rather than us as a sort of series of of malfunctioning organs. You know, even if we um, are in specialty medicine, for instance, my main specialty, my main clinical work is in uh, pain medicine. So I get referrals of patients with advanced medical illness and so forth. And I do see it as at least my responsibility to invite a discussion about what people would want for themselves if they get so either to the point where they can't make decisions on their own, and to assure that they've actually put something in writing form. I think what we learned from the Terry Schiavo fiasco a few years ago is that if things aren't written down, they're just invitations for potential problems and, and outside intervention um, um, or outside involvement by by a host of strangers who may have agendas that um, go beyond our own particular self-interest. And so documentation of our wishes and having a discussion and that documented by a physician who feels that they really know the patient adequately to understand what their preferences would be is is very important.
0: How often do you believe DNR is discussed when people complete their advanced directive?
1: I think the evidence suggests that it's not, uh, it's a minority rather than a majority of cases. That, uh, in fact, it's still a minority of individuals that have written advanced directives. I think I, I mentioned the Terry Schiavo situation. Post Terry Schiavo, there was a tremendous, um, upsurge of interest. There's a program, uh, run through the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization called Caring Connections that, uh, has a, a website where people can upload or download rather, uh, um, advanced directives. And I think there were over a million downloads um, within uh, the months around which that situation was going on. And I think it rekindled uh, a recognition and interest in people that this is important stuff. But people do need to be constantly reminded of this. And again, I, I would suggest that this is one of those primary preventive issues that physicians should take on, similar to uh, you know blood pressure monitoring and glucose monitoring and cholesterol monitoring and mammography in women and PSAs in men that the discussion about what happens if you get an acute event or a slow progressive chronic event. Nevertheless, what happens, uh, you know, over time, and what do you want your, um, you know, what, what are your wishes, and and things change over time. So recurrent discussions are important as well.
0: Well, hospices admit patients without a DNR.
1: Yes, in fact, that's one of those. Uh, it's actually a right that has been established under the law. That that in fact, healthcare settings of, of all sorts, especially under Medicare. You know, when under federal reimbursement programs, cannot discriminate against patients who have different uh, self-determined, uh, you know, absence of or presence of advanced directives.
0: What's your best advice for explaining the benefits of a DNR to a hospice patient?
1: I think you know, into the circumstances which which I describe this, first I just try and figure out what patients know or don't know, or think they know or think they don't know. And and again, we started off with this sort of the medium is the message, you know, and uh, and what people watch on TV and, and think is that. In some ways, um, you know, if, if they, you know, we can always pull out one more trick from our magic uh, black bags uh, and, and create some almost a delusion of immortality. And so I think that we really need to be not brutally but gently realistic with patients. And you know, I think that they, most individuals, you know, if we speak with them in a sensitive and caring way, will understand that in fact immortality is not available. And that there are a host of really you know worse things than uh, death itself, and that uh, that our job is to mitigate against unnecessary suffering, and so we need to understand and hear from patients what they would consider to be for themselves um, a level of suffering beyond which they would feel it would be right for them and then I think we can really delve from there into uh into you know the kind of meaningful discussions that will lead to conclusions about um, you know final conclusions about whether a DNR order uh, at a given time makes sense or not.
0: Dr. Fine, thank you for joining us today. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com.
1: Thank you for listening.